Test, test. There we go. All right. Uh, as Andrew said in his prayer, we have been um, on a series, stewardship series. We do it every January. This is the last message on the series this year. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. And we set up this series, the very first message, I called, tre- I called it Treasure Hunters. And we went to a passage where Jesus was using some illustrations. I put a verse up there just so you could, to remind you of it. Matthew 13, 44, which Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And one of the main points of that very first message in the series was to point out that this guy who found the treasure leveraged his entire life, reoriented his entire life around something that he saw as immense and great value. And Jesus said that treasure is like the kingdom of heaven, meaning it is something not only of great value, eternal value, but... It's something that you should reorient your life around. I mean, what would it take? What kind of changes would there be if you sold everything? Houses, cars, clothing. And that's the analogy that Jesus is exhorting you with. That like this man who sold everything, oriented himself around this treasure, you are to be doing that for the kingdom of God. And through the series... We've taken this idea, and like this man who found the treasure, we've said we're all treasure hunters. You are all pursuing something in life. And I wanted to start with an illustration today about that, and I was going to tell you about Ponce de Leon. Perhaps you've heard about Ponce de Leon. 16th century, pursued the fountain of youth. He was a conquistador, so just imagine what it would take. What kind of sacrifices it would take to go from Europe, wooden ship, sailing across an ocean. How many islands are there in the Caribbean? It's somewhere in this area we're going to find. It's a stream. It's a pool. Not exactly sure. It's one of these things trying to find this fountain of youth. It was said if you bathed in it, if you drank from it, it would bring back vitality. I think one of the stories was you could be an old man bathe, drink in it, and then you could get married again and have children. That was kind of the idea of it. And now, how much of it's legend, the story of Ponce de Leon? I don't know. But the idea is what I want to give to you is this guy pursued something that came at great sacrifice. And the reality is, in the end, he didn't find it, did he? You know why he didn't find it? Because it doesn't exist. So he was chasing something that was elusive, And that can be something we can grab onto because I doubt any of you are in search of the fountain of youth, but fill in the blank. There's something else you're in search of. And like uh, Ponce de Leon, it may come at great sacrifice. It could take years. It could take a lifetime. And you just think about it. What sacrifices might you make to get that career? And in the end, she says, I did it. I got the career. I built something to build a nest egg, to retire at a certain age, to reach a certain rank in the military, to um, have the degrees that 
open doors that get the job you really want. I mean, you could fill the blank in with a lot of things. A family. And you leverage everything. And in Ponce de Leon's case, it was elusive. And there's a sense that even in our life, we can pursue so many things and fill that into our life. And at the end, it will not meet the spiritual need that we can only get in Christ. And the treasure, the true treasure, the true treasure is Christ. And the stewardship series is meant to to remind us of that, that we should be leveraging our lives in a way that is building into His eternal kingdom. That's what we want to look at today. And so I titled today's message, The Sacrificial Hunter, as we are all hunting, looking for treasure, filling things in our life. But I want to give you the standard right off the bat, and then we're going to come back to it at the end. But let me give you the standard. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I put it on the screen. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. That's a sacrifice. His pursuit was you. Ultimately, the glory of His Father, but the mission He was given coming to earth was to pursue the salvation of you. And look at the sacrifice. He, we're going to come back to this at the end. He says, you know about this. If you're a believer in Christ, you know about this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the standard. I'll come back to it. I want to read to you the first five verses of chapter 8, but we're going to come back to that word grace because he uses it quite a bit. But follow along with me as I read to you the first five verses, which is what we're going to study today. And here's what Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, if I were to continue reading the rest of that chapter and into chapter 9, you will find him use the word grace seven times. In the, in the uh, um, standard where it talked about Christ, he used the word grace. In this passage, first five verses, he used the word grace, but seven times. And I asked the question, what does he mean by grace? Because it's going to drive at and be the heart of the sacrificial hunter. What is meant by grace? And the answer is, I'm going to give it to you in two parts. But the first part is that he, it, it is talking. You can attach it to a sum of money. In this first five verses, there's a sum of money that was collected by the Macedonians and sent to another church, a church that needed relief. And he uses them as an example. But it means so much more than that. It means something is driving at the heart of those givers. And this is one of the principles that I laid out in the first message, that God cares about the heart of His givers. 
He wants them to be cheerful, generous, not obligatory. There are not contrivances in the church for giving. The motivation is all about what Christ has done for you, and it transforms you into being a person like Him. That's really what is meant by the word grace. And we see it in these verses manifesting in the sum of a money that's being sent. But ultimately, what is, what is meant is this transformation that has happened in the heart of the giver. Now, one pastor framed it this way, not only has the grace of God brought more affliction, but it has not removed poverty. Instead, it has made poor people radically generous people. And that to me summarizes these five verses, because we're going to see that the givers were people who were afflicted. The givers were people who were poor, poverty. He uses the word extreme. And yet what comes out of them he says, is this generous gift. And that is the essence of grace. Yes, they're going to send money to help brothers and sisters in Christ, but it is a reflection of their heart. It's a reflection that they're radically changed and they're generous because they have been recipients of radically generous grace from God. So here's the first point I want to give you that poverty produces grace, which is a flip-flop of what you might imagine. Poverty, a human standard, might, we might say, produces stress, and it produces anxiety. It produces a lot of negative things. And yet, in this particular passage, we're going to see that poverty produces something else. Poverty produces grace in a way you won't see it without the poverty. And what do, we, what do we get in this? We see, first of all, that these givers, the condition that, that they are giving out of, severe test of affliction. And so grace doesn't remove trouble. Oftentimes it brings it. It's something to make note of. It's an observation because now I grew up in the Midwest watching preachers who often got on TV and taught the opposite. With God in your life, everything's going to go great. Prosperity and blessing, health, wealth. But we see in Scripture this isn't the standard. It's not. Oftentimes, actually, bringing Christ into your life brings the opposite. It brings persecution. It brings ridicule. It can bring affliction, particularly in a culture that may be antagonistic towards the message of Christ. And now you bring it into your life, they're going to come and afflict you. They may take your stuff. They may hurt you, pursue you, persecute you. Grace doesn't remove trouble, but often brings it. And we see here that these are people who, the word test is there, affliction in their life. Poverty, though also, we find in them joy an abundance of joy. That is the true mark of grace, joy. Are you a person who is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that has been given to you out of heaven? Well, then you'll be a person of joy. It will be the anchor in your life. Our eyeballs are looking forward to that 
that inheritance that's eternal. Sometimes our eyeballs focus on right here on earth and that affliction that's there, the poverty is there, is what drives us and robs us of joy. But the true mark of grace and the transformed heart is joy is coming out of that heart. Now, not only this, he, he emphasizes it as well, extreme poverty. Not just poverty, extreme poverty. You might say beggar or pauper. And man, this, this grades against that, that prosperity gospel, doesn't it? To say, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. This grades against it because their joy is not anchored to wealth or health. And their gift of grace isn't either. Now, this leads you to some, some words that describe God's view of them. I'm going to go back here and just read it. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, it's like an equation. There's three things in that equation, right? Number one, severe test of, uh, of affliction, plus abundance of joy, showing their heart, plus extreme poverty. And what came out of that? A wealth of generosity. A wealth of generosity. And I want to say to you, how big was the financial gift? Can't be that big, but it's proportionate to who they were. They were a poverty-stricken church under affliction, and they collected what they could to send, and God looked at it and described it as wealth. You might hear that word and go, wealth is rich. It's somebody with a lot, and that gift must be huge didn't necessarily say that, but proportionate to who they were, it was wealth. It's like that widow and her might, right? You know the story, the widow's might, where they're watching people give and people are coming and they're putting money in the, the giving box. And it says some of them were giving large sums of money. And then this poor widow comes and she throws in the smallest amount. It's like throwing a penny in there. And Jesus' observation was basically she gave more because proportionately what she had was so little that the proportion of what she gave was actually greater than the proportion of these large sums. How is a penny worth more than a million dollars when it's all you have? Proportionately, this church, what they gave is described as wealth. And I'm going to come back to this again, this principle of proportion. But right now, I'm going to summarize this. This is John Piper. He says, the effect of God's grace is not first to remove affliction and not first to remove poverty, but to give abundant joy that overflows in wealth and generosity. That is where we're getting here to the heart of what grace is. It is a, it is a, it's symbolic of what we would find in the heart if we were to look in there. A transformed person. Christ was rich and became poor so that you might become rich. And that has transformed them so much that they are giving in a way that he describes as wealth. Sometimes you might think that 
It is the wealthy person of the church who is propping up all the ministries. But statistically, that's not true. Sometimes it might be, but statistically. In fact, going back to John Piper, he said, all studies show that on average, the richer people are, the smaller the percentage of their money they give to charity. And he goes on in an exhortation to his own church. Whether the American church is a generous church compared to the church in the third world will be revealed at the last day when all the proportions are reckoned up. Oh, that God would guard us from the blinding and binding effects of wealth. It can be a great source of joyful giving, but it more often turns once into needs and makes us blind and callous to what is happening in poor places of the world. At the time he used Sudan, for example, where families have to choose which risk to take when they fetch water. To go to the well a mile away, daddy could be shot, mommy could be raped, children could be kidnapped. And they take that risk. And Piper went on to challenge his church. He said, when I pray for your financial prosperity, I ask the Lord that he will prosper only those who will treasure Christ above all and who have their hearts set on living simply and giving more and more away. Otherwise, prosperity would be deadly. We see this great example that Paul is giving us in this church. Poverty is producing grace. And what comes out of it is a designation by God that there's wealth in that gift. And it creates something in the heart, doesn't it? And so what we see in the next part, part two here, is patterns of the heart. Verses 3 to 4, let me read them to you. It says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, <clears throat> the first thing I notice in here is that they gave according to their means, which is important. God sets no fixed amount or percentage and expects His people to give based on what they have. Now, that is different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, set amounts, percentages. You give this percent. I grew up in the church where they used the word tithe. If you're not familiar with that word, the word tithe it, its literal meaning is 10%. And in church, they would use the word tithe to, to indicate that you're giving 10%. So if you make $100, to tithe would be $10. Sometimes people say, I tithe 20%. Well, no, you don't, because you just said I 10% 20%. That's a technicality. But I want you to see, in the Old Testament, it, was, it wasn't free will giving. I mean, it would be like us today saying... Well, come time to pay our taxes. And the government said, well, it's your own free will. Give what you want. It wouldn't work that way, would it? And most people are like, I'm not giving. I'm going to give a little bit. You know? I mean, where would be the person, I'm generously going to give to the government 80%? You know? No. But in the Old Testament, they gave as much as 30% on the books, part of the laws. Remember, it was religion 
the Judaism plus the government, it was a theocracy, it wasn't a separation of church and state. So part of what they gave, 10% would go to run in the, the temple and these things, 10% would go to, I mean, it broke down. Some of it was like taxes. But when we get over here to the New Testament, right, it's, it's not a law. Law would not be free will giving. For me to tell you, you must give this percentage is, is, is a way of contriving. It's not free will. Proportionate, though, to who you are. You see, it challenges because a percentage can be a limitation. There are some who can give more than 10. And so there's a way in which God opens it up and says, proportionate, free will, consider, go away, decide, come back and give. That's the way the New Testament unfolds it in guiding us, in trying to shape our hearts. But we see it right here. We see it. They gave according to means. They were poor, not a percentage. Beyond their means, which means they took risks. Which, see, some people might say, that poor widow shouldn't put two pennies in. Okay, maybe one, but, but she's risking. And what if you're a family and you got kids and you better make sure you got enough for this. But in this case, they took risks. I'm going to give what enough that some people might look at that and say, say, you may not be able to make ends meet if you give that much. But they said, I got enough faith, I'm going to give it. And that's what he says about them. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. And then also, he emphasizes that free will, of their own free will. And then lastly, he puts in there this thing about their desire. It shows something about their heart. I'm going to read that part again because it says they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, I think, and, and as I was studying and reading this, other pastors said it in their commentaries, you know, that this, is, this might be Paul. Uh, saying in a way like maybe they shouldn't have taken the risk, you know, because there might be some guilt there. They are a poor church. Well, that's too much. But they were begging. We want to be a part of this relief effort because it's showing something that comes out of their heart. They're thinking about, yeah, they, they, they're afflicted. They're poor. But our brothers and sisters over here, are, they're going through a famine. And we want to help them. And we're going to give to help meet that need. Begging. Now, the last part here, we see a prioritizing of grace. I put it all on one slide. Let me read it to you, though. Verse 5 says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, I think that's significant what he's doing there because he says, first to God. They gave themselves first to God. See, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, how are you actually giving to Him? Giving is a form of worship. How can you worship that which you do not know? 
It's some other kind of giving. Philanthropic, perhaps, which I would caveat is a sign of common grace, which is another sermon. But I would say what you're, what you're seeing from Paul here is put God first. Sort that out. Where are you? Have you put your faith in who He is? And become part of the family of God. Put God first. But not just Savior, but also He's the boss. He's the king. His word has authority. Many people like the Savior part, but they don't like the boss part. They don't, I don't want to follow everything that's in this. But Jesus is not a king that shares His authority. And there's a way in which Paul is saying, first, you've got to give yourself first to that authority. The Savior, our salvation, but also He's our King. Because He, he says in the next part, first to God, okay, and then secondly, to, then to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. The second thing is we give ourselves to God and then we give ourselves to His people. You're part of the family. I mean, there's a way in which, like, I could tell you, right, as a father, you love it when you see your children uh, ministering to their own brothers and sisters. I mean, there's so much sacrifice as a parent you pour into kids, and then you look and you don't want them being selfish towards one another. Hey, share that, you know? And I love seeing that. My daughter, she's 13. She's our only girl. She's once, she doesn't have another sister, you know? All the boys are always piling around. She's always wanting attention. She'll come in, can you do this with me? Hey, do you want to play a game? Hey, do you want to? Always, you know? And I love it when I see one of the brothers say, hey, let's, let's, I'll do this with you. And he sits down and he does something with him. And I love seeing that. And then it even motivates me. It's Saturday, yesterday morning, and I, through the whole week, I saw the brothers doing stuff with her, and I see, oh, she loves it when she goes with her brother Ethan. She actually goes and works out at the gym with one of her brothers, which puts even more pressure on me. I have a wife who's a coach, and now a daughter who's working out, and they both come, hey, Dad, how come you're not in the gym? You know, <laughs> Double whammy. But then I go Saturday morning, she came, she's hugging me, Dad, do you want to go on a hike? Because like, finally I was like, all right, I'll take you. And so we go on a hike to Sigwa, and we slip and fall in the sword grass and get muddy and dirty. But I love seeing that. There's a way in which it's, it's right there, first to God. Now, if, if you're in the family of God, then these are your brothers and sisters, and we're to give to each other in that way. And notice what he says. It's, it's the will of God. It is His will that you give one to another, that you know about each other, you know each other's lives, and if there's a need, you're going to help meet that need. That is God's desire for you. First, be in the family. Put your faith there. Submit to His kingship, to His lordship. Be directed by His word. And in this case, one of the things He's teaching you in stewardship, the example of the Macedonians, they didn't have a lot, but this is what they're motivated by. Those are our brothers and sisters and even though we can't give much, we're going to give what we can. Let's collect what little we can and send it to them. And it just 
praises the Father. The Father loves seeing that. But one and two there, they're on top of a foundation, aren't they? There's something else, something else. You would think it's one, two, three, but actually number three is the foundational. One and two are on top of that, and that is what I read to you at the very beginning. I'm going to go back and read it again. The foundation is Christ. He's our example. For you know the grace. Now now that now we've talked about what that word means, just think of the verse that way. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Now, if that's the example, then you can understand people who, a, a, a poor church, whatever sacrifice they made, it was sacrificial because they didn't have a lot. So whatever they're giving is sacrificial and they're going to go send it to them. They're just copying what they have received from Christ. He's the foundation. We're building on top of that. I'm going to follow after the example of Christ. Except the difference is this. See, when that Macedonian church sent the collection and it was relief, it's temporary. Whatever they received, it gets utilized, the need resurfaces. But in Christ's case, He made you rich. It's not like the collection went over there and, hey, we got the collection. We're all rich now. Let's live like millionaires. But with Christ, His gift to you makes you rich. And we forget about that. That's part of that gospel message. I, I, I come back to this every year four or five times. The gospel isn't just washing away sin and wrongdoings. It's part of it. That's the mercy part. You deserve judgment. You deserve hell. Because you have rebelled. You've broken all the commandments, many, some of them many, many, many times. You deserve whatever. You can't say, I don't deserve this. You do. And the, there's the, the part of the gospel that says, take that away. It's going to be put on Christ, but I'm going to take it away. But it's like, I should have been serving that life sentence. I'm on death row, in prison. Suddenly, they brought me out of the prison. You're free to go. The price for what you did has been paid. But see, the God, hallelujah, yes, but, the, but it doesn't stop there, does it? It doesn't stop there. Suddenly a limo pulls up. The richest man in the world sitting in it opens the door and says, come here. I paid, I paid the price for you and I'm taking you to my house and you're going to be part of my family. The gospel's both of those. See, on the one hand, the mercy is you deserve the judgment, but you didn't get it. But you never earned the rich part. It was given to you as well. It's both of those. Christ made you rich, but it cost Him because He took that penalty on the cross for us. But I want you to think about, just if you could think in your mind three things that Christ gave up in your mind, in order to make you rich, what would you come up with? Now, I, I got some. I want to show you. <clears throat> and I, I borrowed this list from another pastor, David Jeremiah. 
Sacrificial giving. You want to know what sacrificial giving is? Let's look at Christ's example. Number one, he traded spiritual existence for fleshly existence. He's in heaven and he leaves and comes down to earth. He traded the presence of God for the presence of men. The beauty of heaven for the streets of earth. Which you could say he, stra- he traded the streets of gold for the streets of dirt. You could see, say it that way, right? For you. That's sacrificial. He gave it up so that you could be rich. He emptied himself, the Bible says, who he was sitting on that throne. He became a servant. He's a king, and then he becomes a servant. He was poor in his sacrifice, too. I mean, at the end, when he, when he dies on the cross, his only possession, an imperfect cloak on the ground, and they're casting lots to see who can take it off of him. He died poor in that sense. Well, I want to finish the whole series with three thoughts for you because um, every year I think through when in the series I can talk about specific things, but as I've said in this series, we're treasure hunters. I don't know what your particular treasure is, what you're searching for. Ponce de Leon was searching for that fountain of youth, you've got something else, you fill in the blank, the sacrifices He made and it amounted to nothing. I, I teach the stewardship series because I, don't, I would not want any child of God to get to the end and realize that they have spent most of their life chasing after things that don't have eternal value. We need to be investing in things that have eternal value. So while we're searching, I don't want you to forget, number one, that giving should be proportionate to what we have. It's one of the main points and principles that I often make in the stewardship series. In the Bible, you move from percentages that are on the books that you're supposed to give to proportion. That's why over here, it gives you numbers to give. Over here, Paul says it this way, what you sow is what you reap. If you sow sparingly, you harvest, reap sparingly. If you sow a lot, you reap a lot. And there is this principle that God does give back to us that I've taught through the series, which I won't belabor right here in this moment. But the point I'm making here today is the emphasis is on proportion. And part of that is because the very, the very first time that I did a series in here, I tried to deconstruct the idea of 10% being what is asked of us in Scripture. Uh, I grew up with that. You give 10% back to God. But for many people, 10% is a limitation when they could give more. Could you give 10.5%? Could you give 11%? And I've always used the phrase, which I stole from John Piper, strive to tithe and beyond. And that to me is a phrase that gives you your entire life. You're somewhere on that spectrum. Old Testament was 10%. What do you give? I don't know. We should strive to tithe 
and beyond. Because it works like this. If you make whatever dollar amount that you make, um, and God gives back to you, if you, re if you sow a lot, he said, you reap a lot, what do you do with the lot? Continue to give the same amount? Because what we see Paul say to the Corinthian church is he gives back not only to provide for us, but to do good works. So the first time I taught on this, one of the men in the church came and we had a good discussion and he had grown up with the 10% and he said, I, you know, I give 10% and just let's for example's sake, if I give, t if I make $100,000 and I give 10% of that, but then five years later I'm making $200,000 and I give 10%, it's more, right? I'm giving more. You're giving, you're still, but, and so the discussion was, but you're still giving 10%, right? You're still giving 10%. And so the way I like to, to illustrate this is let's keep going. Let's keep going. What if 20 years from now you make a billion dollars? Woohoo! And you're like, I give 10% of that. But what are you doing with it? And I've got to get this right because in the first service I got the math wrong. But, but if you're giving 10%, what, what, how much millions of dollars is left? How, how much of that, what are you doing with that? I mean, could you then give 11%? Do you see that? I mean, is it enough to live off the rest is that going to be enough? What are you doing with it? And there is a way which you could say, well, maybe I could give 11% or 12% of a billion dollars. And all of that is going into kingdom stuff. And then at the end of my life, when I'm standing before God, that's what shows. Not any yacht or whatever a billionaire would spend money on, right? Not any of that is going to be there. But investment in eternity is what's there. That's the way I, I, I try to go at it. And I in our series, I'm always like, I don't know what people give, but I like to exhort people to be generous. It is, it, what you give should be proportionate. And you see, you see, the widow and the church that he's talking about here that was afflicted and poverty stricken, what word did he use to describe them in their gifts? Wealth. Because they, in the widow, he says, she gave out of her want. They gave beyond their means. And he sees what they give as more. So you could have 10% of a billion, and he say, that's actually what you're giving is less. Because the widow, they were throwing in big chunks of money, but she gave more. So there's a way in which our giving is proportionate. It's proportionate. It's a representation of who you are. An example of that, David Jeremiah told this story 20 years ago, about a man who was driving on the freeway, and he looked over and he saw a limousine on the side, had a flat tire. The chauffeur was out, he was working, trying to fix it, and this guy was good at fixing flats, so he pulls over, he comes out, hey, do you need some help with this? And the guy welcomed the help, yeah, help me, and they worked together, propping that up, getting that tire on, and they were all done, and he's about to go back to his car, and the chauffeur says, hey, before you go, the the owner in the limo wants to say thank you. Okay. So he goes over, the window comes down, and he looks in there, and it's one of the richest men in the world sitting in that limo. And he said, I just want to say thank you for taking the time, getting your hands dirty. Oh, it's no problem, sir. He says, what can I do? 
to say thank you? What can I give you to say thank you? He said, you know, sir, uh, I own a business. We do okay. You know, I don't really have a need, but uh, you know what you could do that would be nice? And he gave him his business card. He said, send a bouquet of flowers for my wife to the business. He said, okay, I'll do that. And so he takes the car, the window goes up, he gets back in his car, he drives away. A few weeks pass and this gigantic bouquet of flowers come in. Surprises the wife, whoa! And then he's telling him the story, you know who this is from, you know who I met, helped fix his tire. And they begin to read this card and it's, it's an expression of the gratitude for what he did. But at the very end, he says, and by the way, I paid off the mortgage on your house. Let me tell you, when Jeremiah told that story, I've been stopping for every limo with a flat tire. <laughs> ah, motivation's wrong. But you see what I'm getting at. Paying off that mortgage is proportionate to who he was. Probably wasn't even a dent to his finances, but to that guy, it was a, an immense gift, proportionate much more than flowers, right? Don't forget that giving should be proportionate to what we have. Secondly, don't forget the example of the Macedonians. They gave a little bit, but it had impact. And I go back to what the quote I read from John Piper, that studies show that, the, that you, generally the richer people get, the less charitable they are. And within churches, they find that. You might think that the ministries of the church are, are mostly run by one or two big givers. But the reality is, it's low to middle income people who are just faithful givers that are generous. And that's why it's so important. And over time, it adds up. It does. Sometime today, I want you to get your calculator out and just do the math on this. If you start, let's just, you pick an age. If you start working, say 23, you go to retirement age, let's just say 65. Let's just say you only make $15,000 a year. Do the math. 15,000 times that many years, what number will you get? Let's say you made 30,000 that many years, what number do you get? Because the reality is what you're going to find is at the end of your life, you will have made somewhere between half a million to a million dollars. And if, if you're making more than 60,000, it's going to be a bigger number. And the reality is you're going to get to the end. You're going to stand before God. And you say, well, I didn't really make that much. $15,000 a year isn't really that much, but it adds up to half a million or more that God says, I gave you half a million dollars. What'd you do with it? And there's a way in which in our day-to-day giving or week-to-week every month, even the little bits, when we, when we go back and we consider how much kingdom investment do I need to do I need to invest more in building a net worth for myself or can I give a little bit more to God's kingdom? And then at the end, to stand there and say, this is what I gave for your kingdom, for your ministries, for your work to be done. I think the Macedonians are a great example of that because the smaller you, number that you make, remember, he looked at what the Macedonians gave. And he said, their gift, wealth. It's possible that some of you and some people in God's church make a lot of money and they, they won't, God will look at what's been given over a lifetime and, and he won't use that word. 
because it's proportionate. It's proportionate. And lastly, while you're searching, don't forget how much smaller investments over time make a difference. And I think that I may have jumped the gun on that illustration. That, that, that's what I was driving at, at the end. Even giving over time little amounts adds up to a lot that we can set before God. You know, uh, every year we teach on this subject, and um, it hasn't ever, ever gotten boring to me. When the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God, then everything else will be added unto you. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We're not trying to raise money when we teach in these series. We're raising up good stewards who I desire to have their hearts seeking out the kingdom of God first, that their treasure is something that's eternal. And if we were to follow your heart, what would we find, right? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. We have been blessed over the years, and I think one of my greatest joys of serving in this church is to see the many ways in which we've, we've stewarded and used God's resources for His work. I mean, we do, for the, our church our size, we do support a lot of missionaries over, the, over the, the globe, a lot of local ministries, our own ministries in here, but also because we have a physical location, we get people that come here for help. And over the years, to, even in this year, to be able to uh, help people that have a need to display grace to them, some of them believers, sometimes they're not, but then also to see within our church, the collections that, we, that, that are um, received are utilized in a way that we help people, brothers and sisters of this congregation that have needs. And all of that has been a blessing. It's been a blessing. Father, thank you so much for, first of all, your word, the challenge it gives us, the gospel. At the very heart of the gospel is this word grace. You connect that to, in this lesson, to a gift that's monetary, but ultimately it's a representation of our heart. It's a representation of a transformed heart. By your generosity to us, you've made us into generosity disciples. And I pray that you would continue to do that. Every year as we teach on this, that some of the principles that are taught are new. Every year, because people cycle in, I know that there are people who haven't heard some of these principles. Some have been here all 10 years and heard, heard it over and over again. But to be able to teach it fresh, that your word is so deep, we can find so many places where you challenge our hearts to be good stewards. Christ became poor for us, his poverty, so that we could be rich. So thankful for that. And may I display that thankfulness, that, that gratefulness in how I treat brothers and sisters. As you said, it's the will of God give ourselves to God first and then to each other. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together as we close.